Good morning again, church. My name is Peter. I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. And I'm carrying the series we're doing alongside Mosaic Church and Austin Church. The series, The Story of the Bible. We really want to do all that we can to move from being a people that knows some stories in the Bible to being a people that unitedly knows the story of the Bible and even finds ourselves in the story that God is continuing to write in redemptive We're going through the Bible with just a few, with 12 uh, sermons. So uh, there's 66 books in the Bible. 12 sermons is a lot more than four sermons or whatever a normal series is that we do, but it's not 66. So we're just taking pieces of the Bible thematically. And we are organizing it by the C word. This week, our topic, our C topic is, C topic is corruption. Corruption. Now, just a little overview of the, in Jewish tradition, this is called the, the Hebrew Bible. It's their Bible. Uh, there is the, the law, which is referred to by most Jews, the, the books, Bible. And then there is the writings, which we went over the last few weeks, uh, from the Chronicles, a lot of Jewish history, the Psalms. Uh, we went over that the last few weeks. And then the, the last part, the third part of the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is prophets. Prophets. Most of the prophets from probably the first few kings to even the exile, a few hundred years before Jesus came, the prophets really centered around speaking God's word, sometimes God's harsh words of truth, to people who had rejected God, who were corrupted. To the rest. You to stand to your feet. We're going to find ourselves in the middle of the prophets. We honor God's word, standing to honor that which is above us. actually in, we're in Micah, Micah chapter six, and we'll read verses seven and eight, Micah six, seven, eight. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with Ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The word of God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Thank you, God. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, Adam and Eve walked humbly with their God. They, they walked with you in intimacy and in honesty in the garden. They were, they were naked and unashamed. And then they slowly started to doubt you. Their humility waning, doubting you. They, 
they sinned against you and brought corruption into their hearts. And the seeds of that we all have in us. And ever since then, Lord, we have tried to cover up our corrupt hearts. And we've covered up with a lot of different fake masks and religious shows and performance. So help us, Lord, to strip ourselves of all the pretense and the propriety and being proper before you and to receive back true humility, walking with you, true purity that only you can pay for, real intimacy. No games, Lord. Lord, you can give ears to the deaf, spiritually, physically. So, Lord, help us. Amen. If you're taking notes, I actually have a title today. Uh, title of my message is Facades and Foundations. Facades and Foundations. You need to know that God is after your heart. He's always been after your heart. He's never not been after your heart. He's never been impressed with anything else, any sort of religious performance or activity or symbolic sacrifice of your life. In fact, any religious activity without heart transformation is just a facade. It's just an exterior exterior coat of paint. It's a display on the outside. It's spiritual showmanship. God is after your heart. Now, in verse 7 of Micah 6 here, Micah stands correcting centuries and centuries of corruption of people who had rejected God from their heart on the essential matters of the covenant with God, the agreement that God made with a people that had already rejected him over and over again. These people had rejected God, and all the while they were going on with religious shows and rituals, facades. So verse 7 is about facades. Everyone say facades. Well done. I feel like the right side was stronger than the left. But verse 8 is the next part of what we're gonna, how I'm going to organize my thoughts today. We're going to go into verse 8 and talk about foundations of being a follower of God. Everyone say foundations. Good, that's okay. Acceptable for now. To please God, to truly honor God and make disciples, any less to be a disciple, we need to go back in order to move forward. We need to go back and check our real foundations. It's so easy to think that we can graduate to high, lofty goals in life and yet missed basic foundational things. And this is what God is wanting us to see in his word today. So firstly, facades. Verse 7 starts like this. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with tens of thousands of rivers of oil. So just to review some of the context here, Micah is addressing the people of the book, the people who are very familiar with all the activity, the religious symbolism, but yet had lost their heart for it. They'd grown accustomed to doing things without grasping why they were doing it. Does that sound familiar at all? That's definitely like 
a constant theme in my life. I just do stuff to be busy. And why? I, I don't know. Because I'm busy doing stuff? We do this with God. And God is not pleased with it. For centuries, the Jewish people had done religious things and had been through so much different things in the land and yet were clinging, instead of clinging to God, they were clinging to traditions and practices. I'll give you an example. If you were a Jewish owner of olive groves at the time and you were to, to have a harvest time where you were pressing the olives for oil, it was a command from the Torah, the first, you know, the law, the first part of the Bible, that you were to render the first fruits of that oil to the temple of God for anointing oil. And there was some power in the anointing oil with, with how God used it to consecrate priests for the temple. There was some really powerful stuff happening in the temple. But the power of anointing oil had less to do with the oil and more to do with the anointing. Anointing doesn't bring, anointing oil doesn't bring anointing. God brings anointing. And in, in essence, as it relates to all of the rest of the religious rituals from that time till today, God is still into holy rituals, but holiness is the more important part of the holy ritual thing. Rituals without holiness are disgusting to God. In fact, at one point in this history, a contemporary, more or less a contemporary of Micah, Amos said, I hate, this is, this is God speaking through Amos, I hate your church services. It's not just that he wasn't super duper pleased with the people coming together, like, oh, I'm not super excited about church. He's basically saying, it's better for you to stay home. That's how much I hate this because your hearts are contrary to me. And it's not saying that God, in general, hates it when we gather. He hates it when we gather against him in our hearts. And it's a subtle thing that had happened with the people of God. And God has never been implicitly against gathering, against religious rituals. He's definitely not against religion. Uh, There's some meme or video or something going out about how, you know, how God hates religion. No, God doesn't hate religion. He hates heartlessness. He hates it when religion is a facade. And he wants us to be holy. He's, Jesus is still into religious rituals. In fact, the night before he died for our sin, he enacted a pretty important religious ritual that we are to remember him by. He doesn't just say, think about what I did for you. He said, taste, smell, remember what I've done for you. As often as you eat this bread. See, he instituted holy communion. Now, holy communion is not holy communion if it's not holy. We get the holiness from him and we apply our faith to what he's made holy. He wants us to be into the rituals that make ourselves come together under what he's told us to do. Habits that form us and grow us. But he wants us to do it with faith. And God's people had been missing the point for decades and decades and generations and centuries. 
And at the time when Micah was writing, a lot of the, the historians believed that there was somewhat of an economic boom in this area in the Middle East and with God's people. And there was a, an increased amount of, of people becoming rich off of the land, and yet they'd forgotten the basic holiness of being blessed in order to give blessing to others. And in, in many ways, they were exploiting the poor. They were following the examples of a lot of their perverse leaders. You can't tell me that leaders in a culture are insignificant. Now, I don't think political leaders or uh, your boss, civil, civic leaders, occupational leaders, they aren't essential. You, can, you cannot stand before God and say, hey, uh, I don't follow you wholeheartedly because my boss is a jerk or because I don't like my president. Or You can't say that before God. But we as a people can't say also that it's insignificant when the people we listen to, their music, or the, the, the leaders we choose are contrary to God by heart. So the people of God had bad leaders, and their hearts were following after the same examples. They weren't caring for the poor. They weren't caring for what God told them to do in the heart. And as they were running away from God in their hearts, further and further and further, getting further from God in their heart inclination, they didn't stop doing all their religious rituals. And you need to know that God is not pleased with external adherence. He wants internal devotion in your heart, on the inside. If we've been corrupted on the inside, what use is a beautiful exterior on the outside? If a nice new MacBook has had its hard drive corrupted, what use is it? In fact, it's more dangerous to use it than to not use it. Or for instance, uh, by the way, we've had our building checked. We're good with fire codes and all the other codes. But let's say this building, and this is not hypothetical. This is people die from this every day. What if this building was condemned? You know, there's a, a foundational check, and the foundation was not able to hold up the walls and the roof. What if we just kept gathering in here anyway? And I said, you know what? That, uh, you know, an independent inspection showed that the foundation's bad, so we could put thousands of dollars into that. But no, we have a few hundred, so let's just paint the building. Let's just paint it, make it look nicer. It would be better if the building were torn down completely. And yet we do this with our devotion to God, with our religion. When it says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? This wasn't hypothetical. I believe this was the beginning of the, the root of corruption of the heart of God's people. Uh, it says in First Chronicles 29 that at the, at the very dedication of the temple, Solomon, King Solomon, who we talked about last week, dedicated a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and what Micah is saying here hundreds of years later is, is, is God really pleased with all of the, the rams for a burnt sacrifice? Or is God after your heart? And so he's pointing out a sad contrast with what God sees as greatness and with what we see as greatness. And God could not have been, it's not like Micah was the only person kind of clarifying this. From the writings to the prophets, the whole Bible I'm going to give you a run-through if you buckle in right now and just be ready for Scripture right now. Ready? 
She's ready. We're going. Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, David says. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Hosea 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Psalm 50. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. It's your heart. Psalm 147. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. In other words, God's not impressed with all the stuff that you think you can do for him. But the Lord takes pleasure, verse 11, in those who fear him. Those who hope in his steadfast love. So maybe you came into church today and you're like, man, I've got, I feel condemned because I just don't feel like I've got any good thing to offer God today. Well, maybe that's exactly how you're supposed to come to church. Just a hot mess that's all you can do is hope that he's not. And by the way, he's not. He's strong enough for your weakness. Jesus himself said this to people who really were good at all the external religious things, and yet their hearts were completely corrupt. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. I believe he's pretty much quoting Micah when he says, Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you, have, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Meaning it's not either or. It's not either the heart or doing the things that please God externally. It's first and foremost the heart and then those things. So it's not like God doesn't want our sacrifice, our time, our money to be rendered to him. It's that he wants more than that. He wants fundamentally deeper everything so that he can put his hand on it and multiply it and bless it and bring us his peace and his power and his provision. He wants our heart. And when he has our heart, we will be giving of our time and of our money and of our tithe. But if we do all those things thinking that it can make up for a heart that has been given to another God, another thing, it won't. Anything less than the foundational offering of your heart is a facade. It's a seedless shell of devotion. This last week, I've been teaching my kids something really, really important in my family, and that is how to properly choose sunflower seeds. Uh, Some of my kids just gobble up that whole thing, just eat the shells and everything. And I'm trying to help them like, this is really bad. I'm pretty sure God didn't make our intestines for that. So I'm teaching. This is important in a baseball family. You got you to gotta chew it by, by cracking open the seed, right? And if you're a real expert, you can do it with, without your hands at all, right? Crack open the seed, take, eat that sh- the, the, the shell, eat the seed, spit out the shell. And now sometimes it's really bad because you do all that work and what happens? There's no seed inside. Man, this is real hard problems for me. 
But in regards to religious practice and what God desires in our gathering, in your devotion, when you read the Bible, God often will spit out the shell because he's after the inner seed of your heart devotion and your faith. And the nation of Israel had come to find that they were so displeasing to the Lord and the corruption of their hearts, despite their ongoing religious practice, and time and time again when they were confronted with the displeasure of God, they did not respond well. In fact, the next part of verse 7 Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, when the the people of God were confronted with God's displeasure in their corrupted hearts, despite their religious devotion, did they turn with all of their hearts to God? No. They so often just turned up the volume on all their religious practice. You see, the the worship of the false gods in the Canaanite land, particularly Chemosh and Molech, involved child sacrifice of the firstborn. And I won't spend much time on this because this is very difficult to consider, but let's just be really clear that when God told them to drive out the people of the land, God is God. And he chose sovereignly why he told them to do that. And he wanted to at least drive out this wicked practice. So the answer to the question, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my soul, is absolutely not. In fact, their desire to to say, okay, well, God, we've displeased you, so let's make up for it by even turning up the volume, just be extra dedicated and intense in all of our religiousness, It only made their hearts more corrupt and corrupted the land. The whole reason why God wanted to drive out those practices in the first place. This isn't a simple matter. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the the sadness and the displeasure of God, even as they're in their own minds, in their own corrupted hearts, they tried to become more devoted while clinging on to their own hearts just cause greater tragedy. God is not after a facade. So let's go on to verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Let's stop there. See, God had already laid a clear foundation for hundreds and hundreds of years all over the Bible. He had laid a foundation of what faith was all about. This was nothing new to them. He had already made it plain over and over, and they kept missing the point. It says here, he has told you, O man, what is good. This word good, that's translated in English, good, is really important. In the Hebrew, it's this word tob, what is good. It means good, pleasant, agreeable. It's, it's actually covenant language. So think about this. Go hundreds of years before when God made a covenant with Moses. He calls a people out of slavery and says, here's an agreement, a covenant I have with you of what's good for us to live. God wants good for his people. Amen. Everyone say, God wants good for me. God is good. Say that. All the time. And all the time. God is good. And now listen, God isn't just good to him or to her. 
God's goodness for you is different than his goodness to her. And that's good for you if you don't see it yet. God is good, and he was being good to a people who were not good to him. Hundreds and hundreds of years of corrupted hearts, which corrupted the land and hurt precious babies. And what does God do? He says, I want to restore you to what is good. Check this out. He says, he has shown you what is good. So God's covenant was still intact for a people that had constantly rejected it. How amazing is that? Don't tell me that you're beyond the reach of the mercy of God. And it says, what does the Lord require of you? If we slow down, this word require is such an amazing word too. This is the word daresh, which means a lot of things. I think require is probably an okay translation in English. But it's what does the Lord ask for? Almost like a a blood requirement. So he's saying in contrast with what you continue to think that you have to sacrifice to God, what really is it that the Lord requires of you? Another translation that could be, what does the Lord resort to? That's interesting. He's already made it clear what is good and what he asks for, what he resorts to. It's almost as if the the law lays out all these different things, all these rules we're supposed to follow, and he knows that we haven't done it. And so he says, "Well, well, let me extend it closer to you. I'll resort to this. Now go with me here for a second. Remember the New Testament, Acts chapter 13, where Jesus rises from the dead and sends the people out to all the the non-Jewish people of the world and says, make the gospel known to them. And they start receiving the gospel and there's somewhat of a cultural controversy. Like, wait a minute, they're not having to become Jewish first? And there was some serious cultural collision happening in the first century. And they got together and there was this amazing Uh, synergy that could only come from the Holy Spirit in regards to what really is it that the Lord requires of us. And God simplified it. It's like he resorted to these basic things. Now, I'm not saying that God's character changes or that his expectation changes. But God knows that for the covenant to be uh, ratified and for the covenant and the agreement and the relationship to be upheld— he would have to do a lot of our part of the work in it. In fact, all of it. And that's the beauty of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the same God, and he helps us to be in relationship with him is the least you could say. What does God require of you? What is good? And then it gets to this, the last part of our our portion of Scripture, the last part of verse 8. This is what God wants for you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, these virtues or these requirements, these resolutions, these simplifications are what God shows as indications that we're walking with him. They're not like, don't see these three things as like, prerequisites to maybe curry God's favor. Like, if you do these things over and over again, then maybe someday you'll be acceptable to God. No. Because of the grace of God that allows for you to be in relationship with him, these things are indications of you walking in that grace by his power. Justice, 
love, and humility. So with our remaining time, I'm going to go over these three things, justice, love, and humility. Starting with justice, the, when it says do justice, it uses a word for justice that's really used all over the Old Testament, mispat, all over the, the word judgment, especially the first five books of the, of the, the Bible, Micah's using this word very clearly. This word is, is very clear. God is a just God. He is after justice and righteousness. All the justice systems of the world are flawed, and ours is very flawed too. But it, it might be one of the least bad ones. And if it gets flawed, it's because individuals in the system, the enforcers of the law, the makers of the law, they become corrupted in their hearts. And this is the thing about corruption is you don't often know what's happening until it's kind of too late. And this is what had been happening with the people of God in Israel at the time. Corruption crept into the hearts of the people. And so more and more people sharing in prosperity and power didn't see the subtle corruption that had overtaken their hearts and the subtle disregard for the basics and for the poor. Here's the thing, when, when injustice is woven through a common thread of humanity around you, you often don't see your ongoing contribution to the system. And when God shows it to you, it's so easy to become all those things, all the words in our culture, to, you know, triggered and fragile. And I know it is for me. It's like, man, before I, my conversation with that person, I thought I was so awesome. And now I feel bad and I don't like it. You know what? God was not wanting to leave me with my corruption, with my deception. God has always been after justice for a greater regard for him than for my own comfort. Justice. He's a God of justice. He's made it plain what's required of you to do justice to love kindness. And I've just combined kindness and loving of kindness into one word, love. Again, this word translated kindness can be translated love. It's chesed, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's, it's faithfulness. Some, some versions actually translate it that. And it's another word that's used all over the Torah. Justice and love, justice and love. Justice and love. God is saying through Micah, this is who I've always been. I will never stop being this God. It's not like the God of the Old Testament is a harsh God and the God of the New Testament is a loving God. No, there is plenty of justice in the New Testament. The bloodiest book in the Bible is Revelation. There's plenty of love full in the Old Testament. God has always been a God of justice and love. His steadfast love endures forever, Psalm 118. And the people, let the people of Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. God has always been a God of love. He loves us with a great severity. He loves us and it says his love is a jealous love. His love for you, he's not okay with you loving him most and loving other things to a degree that they corrupt you. He wants all of you because he loves all of you. He's always been a God of love. And I love how Micah says, do justice before he talks about love 
and loving kindness. Because without a holy objective framework for what love is, without the justice of God, what use is it talking about our version of love that we corrupt and defile and digress with errors of progression? Love just, do justice, love kindness. They build on each other. So many examples in our culture of really nice people doing destructive things with a really nice tone. It's like Little Red Riding Hood. We remember that, I think, nursery, oh, fairy tale, sorry. We remember that fairy tale of the wolf really, you know, dressing up like Little Red Riding Hood's grandma. Let's not talk about how she never really noticed grandma having like a really weird beard all over her face. But there was this really sweet, nice voice luring her in. And the story ends badly, I think. I forgot. But the point is, is there's still a lot of wolves. <laughs> okay, kind of a not very well executed illustration, but you're going with me. You can be really nice in your tone and yet destructive if you miss the foundation of God's standard of love, of justice speaking to your love. And what Jesus is after is the confluence of justice in love, a few miles from here is the confluence of the San Marcos River and the Blanco River. The Blanco River, I think I'm supposed to say. And they become one river. And what God is saying is there is an inseparable river of me and my power and my presence. That it, you cannot separate my justice from my love. And you cannot separate my love from my justice. It's who I am. You can't reduce it. Paul says in Ephesians 5, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head. So if we are to be like Jesus, we can't be truthless love. It doesn't exist. We cannot be loveless truth. We are speaking the truth in love. Now we can prefer love and kindness And actually resort to harshness all the time. We're not just supposed to prefer it. We're supposed to love kindness, it says here. Now, in my parenting, I, I know I set out with my kids, like, I want to do, you know, be, be calm. And I want to raise my kids in a way that they understand the standards and the holiness of God and the, the righteousness of God and and. and the virtues of God of working hard and honoring him and all that they do. And in the process of parenting him in that, I often see those shortcuts in the hard moments, literally like where I'm short tempered. And I think that, okay, well, I'm just going to take a shortcut to helping them see what's right, but I do it wrong. And so I'm really just showing them wrongness and those moments of humiliation are still way too many. But those moments of humiliation might set me up to actually humble myself before God, which every once in a while I tend to do, sometimes. Justice, love, and humility. Do justice, love, kindness. And I think it's almost like, but I know you'll struggle with that. And that's why you should need to walk humbly, with your God. Humility. 
Now, I'm wondering if humility is a common thread. The word for humility is, is really only spoken one other time in the Old Testament. I'm wondering if it's one of those common threads that, that Mike is saying, you can't do what's always been clear with the justice and the love of God without humbling yourself before God and receiving his help over and over again. It sort of captures what Mike is talking about in this whole book. The whole book of Micah is about humility. The law itself shows us not only what God expects of us, but what we fail to do when we miss the foundations of God. In fact, Paul says it that way, that the law brings knowledge of our sin and condemnation. And I wonder if that's the point, if seeing the standard of God, of his love, being convicted not just by his justice and his righteousness, but being convicted by the greatness of his love and seeing our own lovelessness in comparison, if that's meant to humble us, not, not to show us that we're lesser than his standards to the degree that he'll, he'll push us away, but so that we see that we're lesser than his standards so that he'll draw us near and help us. Justice and love and humility, it's not just a requirement that we're supposed to bring to God. Like, God's not saying, okay, I'm going to go over here for a few hundred years. Now you go figure out the justice, love, and humility thing. And then once you've figured that out, and then come back to me. No. It says, he's made it clear, oh man, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. What's those next words? With your God. See, we can't do the foundations of faith without his constant help. We are meant to walk with God. The Old Testament tells a story about what's always been required. And at the same time, it tells a story of what we fail in and what the Messiah, the Savior, comes to restore back to us. In fact, I want to just turn one page before and show you something very mysterious that just didn't make any sense until Jesus came. In Micah chapter 5, he's talking about humility, and he points out, points out this town. It's a pretty famous verse now for us. Micah 5, 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Micah is saying you've missed it. You've missed it. All your religious practices, your ideas of greatness are just an empty facade, a seedless shell of devotion. But I'm going to show you true greatness in the most humble of places, the most overlooked of places, like a little tiny town called Bethlehem, this humble city, from there will come a perfect ruler that is divinely humble. That's the perfect convergence of justice and love. Or as John will later say, the word became flesh there and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father. How does he describe it? Full of grace and truth. You could say justice and love. 
And what does Jesus do? How does he display the justice and love on the earth? He becomes the firstborn sacrificed for us. So the people of God were rebuked for the corrupt Canaanite practices, giving their firstborn and child sacrifice. And God says, I will judge that with my justice and I'll restore you with my love. How? By sending my firstborn to wash your corrupted hearts. This perfect one that I will send so that you can know me. This perfect one who is the full embodiment of love and justice and humility. Would you stand with me?